Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com I am a big fan of fake apologies. A big fan of a fake apology. Uh, And it's pretty common in our culture, isn't it, at the moment? And they tend to follow a certain type of formula. So usually what happens is somebody who is famous somehow, whether a politician or some sort of reality TV star, will say something or will do something, you know, stupid, make a silly decision, uh, and Uh, then will be made to pay for it. Uh, And in the modern world, that can be a very recent mistake, or it could have been something they said like a long time ago, and somebody has dug it up off their old uh, Twitter feed or something like that, uh, and uh, then it begins to get some life, doesn't it? Usually then a media storm will begin. Person X has said something stupid, we're outraged, we're disgusted by what they have said. And then they usually will release some sort of statement uh, to apologise. And they they usually follow a a few different patterns. So we have uh, the perfected kind of non-apology apology. So someone will say, I'm really sorry if I offended you. That wasn't my intention. Which is basically saying, I did something, you're offended by it. That offence appears to be your fault and so therefore, I'm sorry for it. Complete blame shifting. It's wonderful to watch. Or, or the other one is, uh, I have done something wrong. What it did is not who I am. What I did is not who I am. That doesn't reflect my values. So I have done something, but it's not who I am. It doesn't reflect who I am. So therefore, somehow, I've separated myself from my behavior. And again, it's a non-apology, isn't it? It's almost saying, I did that, but I didn't really do it, did I? It was almost like another version of me that did it. Incredible. It's amazing how they separate themselves from what they've done. Another favourite of mine is, I regret that you feel that way. Again, total, I've done something wrong. You appear to feel bad about it. I regret that you feel bad, but really I haven't done very much wrong. And one that I witnessed recently, like I was in the room when it happened and I was like making notes in my, as I'm a big fan of fake apologies, and where there was a lot of things to apologise for, and this guy said, I'm going to apologise for one thing, briefly said sorry, and then listed all of the other things that he would not apologise for. And it was, it, was, it was amazing. It was like, I'm not apologising for everything, anything at all, apart from that one thing. You can have this one little thing, which is irrelevant, but the rest, I will not apologise. The fake apology is a, a wonderful uh, modern phenomenon. But the difficulty is... If somebody does genuinely apologise and do it properly, like take ownership for what they did, genuinely uh, talk about how they've hurt people and uh, why that was bad, you know, really, you know, does a proper apology, we still then give them a very hard time for it, don't we? So we'll then they say, well, they did apologise, but they did not do it quick enough. It wasn't quick enough, so now I don't accept their apology. Or perhaps they don't look sincere when they are apologising. Or perhaps they apologised too quickly, in which case, well, they did it too quickly. That's clearly pre-prepared. Actual forgiveness is very hard to come by in our world. And we love apologies, but we also love punishment. We love to punish people. And we aren't great on actual forgiveness. And partly, I think, because we don't really understand what forgiveness is. We'll often say things like, well, you forgive and forget. 
which is loaded with all sorts of problems and half-truths and and mistakes. And Christians might even think, well, God wants us to forgive and forget, because that's what he does, which again is loaded with half-truths and mistakes. And I think sometimes, because we don't really understand forgiveness, we allow bitterness and resentment to, to build, because we don't know how to forgive properly. We allow suffering to to build, actually, by not approaching forgiveness properly. And last week, if you were here, we we started this kind of series with looking at the idea of putting God at the centre. We looked at how Joshua and the people of Israel, back in the Old Testament, how they built an altar. And the altar was the instruction of, of Moses, you've got to build this altar in this particular way. And it was a picture of them putting the word of God at the very centre of their lives, putting God at the centre of them as a people and as a nation. So we didn't really, if you were here last week, talk very much about forgiveness, actually, but we did talk about the idea that God has to be at the centre, and that's where we begin. That's the start point for us. The fundamental question of who you worship, what you worship, actually is really important when we think about forgiveness, because forgiveness, as we've seen, is actually quite difficult to do. We make mistakes in it. So we were starting at the beginning. And this week, I want us to look at how we are forgiven. How, like you can think, how am I forgiven? How am I forgiven by God? Before we forgive others, we need to grapple with our own forgiveness. And it's quite a, a common Christian thing to say. I think if you were to ask someone who never goes to church, uh, what the Christian's how should they behave? And they would often say, well, they should be forgiving. Maybe that's an important part of what it is to be a follower of God's. Maybe they might, you might say, well, what do you know about God? And they might say, well, the Christian God should forgive. Maybe that would be something they would say. But it raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? So why has God forgiven? And what have I been forgiven for exactly? And again, we we live in a time, we live in a culture that really struggles with the idea of forgiveness and also really struggles with the idea of judgment as well. You might often hear people say, don't judge me, even if they're only joking about something that they've done in life, say, don't judge me. And it's a very common thing. Look, I've done this. I'd really rather you had no negative opinion about it whatsoever. And we just reject the idea of judgment. We also reject the idea of there being a standard outside of ourselves that perhaps we have to live to. So with the idea maybe that God has a way for us to live, a standard for us to live up to, uh, perhaps even a path that he wants to follow that is outside of ourselves. We like setting our own standards. We're not super keen on the idea of a God who sets a standard for us. But to understand how we are forgiven we perhaps need to understand a little bit of the motivation of God's, the character of God's, even. You can understand the actions of a person, perhaps, if you get to know that person. So if you've got your Bibles, if you would go to John 3, usually I put the Bible passages up behind me, but 
My laptop got nicked, and I don't know how to do that on the new laptop, so I apologise. I will one day work that out. It sounds quite an old person thing to say, that, isn't it? I know it's quite simple, and I intend to do it on my new laptop, but I don't want to do it on my... It doesn't matter. So just go to your own Bibles. That's a good thing. If, if nothing else, we're teaching you to have your own Bible here. So you either open it on the app or on the paper version. Go to John 3, 16. John 3.16, I'm sure you could probably think, yeah, I know what that verse is, Tim, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Classic verse, right? We love talking about the God of love, don't we? We, we absolutely love it. The perfect, sacrificial God of love who saves us from death brings us into eternal life. We love that verse. Absolute feel-good verse, isn't it? But to understand it, we probably need to read the whole story. So uh, go back a few verses in John 3. Go to verse number 1, and we will read the whole interaction that happens here with this particular uh, verse right in the middle of it. It says, verse 1, Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replies, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus comes back and says, well, how can someone be born when they're old, he says? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born again. And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sounds, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. Well, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except by the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Then comes John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But we keep going because we learn more. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. That's quite a conversation the two of them have there. So why does this help us to understand forgiveness? 
But what we see Jesus trying to explain to this guy Nicodemus is that there is very close proximity between the love of God's and the holiness of God's. God wants to save, to to give eternal life. He also wants to deal with sin, wants to deal with evil, wants to deal with the rebellion against him. Uh, There's an author called Tim Keller, and he describes this particular passage as showing that God is a God of love and a God of fury. This passage shows us the profound effect of salvation, of following God's, shows how God loves us, shows how God is holy as well. I think for us, this is our foundation stone of forgiveness. It shows forgiveness comes not from our own efforts, our own knowledge, even our own poor attempts to apologise. It comes from God. So let's take a step back and look at this and meet Nicodemus, who is a fascinating character. Nicodemus, actually, in this conversation, is about to get his life profoundly changed by Jesus. Uh, And we will meet Nicodemus again, actually, towards uh, the end of some of the Gospels. He appears with uh, Joseph, and they prepare Jesus' body. So Jesus has been crucified, he's taken down from the cross, and a few of them kind of prepare his body with incense and clean him and put him in a tomb. And Nicodemus is one of those people. He is profoundly changed by this encounter with God. But in this moment, as we meet him for the first time, we see he is completely baffled. He does not understand what is going on, what Jesus is about. And he's clearly been observing and watching Jesus and then comes to him late at night because he needs some help. He needs some, uh, some guidance on what he sees. And it's a, an interaction between a religious expert and Jesus. And we see a few of these in the Gospels of these Pharisees talking to Jesus. But usually they're out to attack him. They want to trap him. They want to make him look stupid or they want to show him to be a heretic, to be evil himself. But Nicodemus is actually approaching in quite a good spirit. There's a man who genuinely wants to understand what's going on. And we see even the fact that he turns up at night is because he wants the cover of darkness so perhaps he can get to the the truth of what's happening. He doesn't want to be seen by anyone else. But I love the fact that he is baffled because it gives me a little bit of hope in a funny way. He is a man of high credential. He is a man of learning and intellect and yet still he is struggling to keep up with Jesus Now, he was on the ruling council as well. So his opinion is really very, very important in Israel. He is a big deal. And so he finds him at night. And he's scared. He thinks he'll lose his reputation. But Jesus still wants to talk to him, which is good for us. Whatever state we approach Jesus, even if it is kind of in a hidden way, in a way that isn't public, actually, Jesus is still keen to talk to us. But Jesus pushes back. He doesn't actually give him an easy ride. He really wants Nicodemus to to see and understand and learn. So he gives him a bit of a shove because there is something in all of this that Nicodemus has missed. And Jesus says, doesn't he? He says, look, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And this concept blows his mind. I mean, he's, he's talking about, do I need to go back into my mother's womb? That's ridiculous. How can, how can I be born again? Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. 
So Jesus is explaining, look, this is how humans can be saved, can be restored, can be made right. So when he talks about being in the kingdom of God, he's talking about following Jesus, living for Jesus, being restored back into what we were intended for. And Nicodemus, in his mind, would have thought that he was already in the kingdom of God himself. That would be by his ethnicity. So he'd have been thinking, I'm Jewish, so that should get me in, right? But also by his virtue, by how good he is, by how he obeys the laws and rules of their religion at the time. But Jesus is kind of taking this to pieces in front of him. He's saying, look, the family or the nation that you are born into doesn't really matter. The quality of your lifestyle she doesn't really matter. Your efforts are not enough. You are saved by the Spirit at work in you. Being born again, as Jesus describes it, is by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit works in us for that to happen. Now, in a funny way, I feel a tiny bit like Nicodemus, right? I was born into a Christian family, good Christian family, actually. Uh, so good, my granddad was a minister, that's, which is extra points, right? Uh, and it was a good family. My mum and dad were good, loving parents, um, upstanding citizens, law-abiding, uh, and I was brought up to uh, see God as important and church as important, and it was a big part of our lives as kids to, to, to live that way. Uh, all of that means I know how to look like a Christian, right? I can, I can do that. I know how to behave in those ways. But actually, my upbringing and all of that is pretty meaningless. I needed to be born of the Spirit, not of my family. So as a kid, actually, I was born again. I, I, I can remember praying, and I was pretty young. I think I was uh, maybe six, and so I really was pretty young. But I remember praying that I wanted to follow Jesus. As much as a six-year-old can understand the concepts, I did. I wanted to follow Jesus, to believe in him. And then I was baptised, so like Jesus talks about here, born of water, I was baptised when I was nine and I encountered the Holy Spirit not long after that. And that was the important part of being born again. And this passage is really very important for us. It shows that people who, who choose to believe in Jesus, to follow him, do that because the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work in their lives. And when we think about forgiveness, even our own forgiveness, or maybe in the future as we begin to think about forgiving others, that's really very important to have the Holy Spirit at work in us, to know our own forgiveness, to, to actually be able to walk in that daily, to know actually, no, I'm forgiven for that. That doesn't need to hang over me anymore. That thing that I did doesn't need to hang over me because God has forgiven me. To apply it to those difficult moments in life needs the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The potential for change, for change in our own lives, is comparable to being born again. That's what Jesus was getting at here. It's a very unusual way to describe, look, you're in the Holy Spirit, in the work of God in you, you are made into a brand new person. So how does that happen? Well, Jesus says, everyone who believes may have eternal life in him to believe in Jesus. And it's not just a belief in his existence, right? Because he was explaining this to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is sat there looking at him. So Nicodemus believed in the existence of Jesus. 
They were sat opposite each other, having a conversation. He believed in him. At least, he believed he was there. And actually, in history, if you were to look at what historians say, most historians would say Jesus existed as a character in history. There is plenty of evidence for the existence of Jesus. Plenty of evidence for him being killed by the Romans. It's actually pretty easy to believe in the existence of Jesus. But that's not what Jesus is driving at here. Belief is to become a a follower, to believe the things that Jesus says about himself, to live in the good of those things, to believe that he is the son of God. Actually, at the beginning of uh, the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Mark and Matthew, it talks about how Jesus encountered the disciples for the first time and they put down their lives. So they were fishermen. talks about how they put down their nets to follow Jesus, to become a disciple of him. That is what it is to believe. They didn't look at Jesus and say, yep, I can see he's there. I believe he's there. I'm going to now carry on with my life as it was before. Actually, it's something very different. It's to be born again. And this is possible because God is a God of love and a God of holiness. God of love and fury, as Keller would say. And this God knows there is no eternity that he talks about. There's no sense of that, uh, of living with God forever without forgiveness, without dealing with the evil that is in the world. And let's just remind ourselves of a a few verses there. Verse 18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. It's a big statement there, isn't it? It's not about belief in his existence. It's easy to do, but it's about a belief and a following him. If you believe and you follow and you give yourself, you're born again, then you're not condemned. There is forgiveness there. Light has come into the world, the light being Jesus, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth, that is to believe and to follow Jesus, comes into the light. God is holy. That's what he's trying to get us here. Holy means to be, to be set apart, to be completely different. As light is to dark. And light causes darkness to flee. It causes reaction. And Jesus is explaining this. He's explaining, look, the reason that there is this reaction to me that you can see, the reason that some people run to me and some people run from me, is because he is light in darkness. The holiness of God is actually very hard for us to be near. We have a habit of humans of making God into the God we would like him to be. So uh, we can make him majority loving. So we're big fans of John 3.16. We love that because it's all about how God loves us, does loads for us, but we'll stop at that point. And we don't read through to John 3.17 and 18 where it talks about actually if you don't follow, there's condemnation. So we can turn him into majority loving or we turn him majority holy. So he's angry gods. It's almost like we set up God up to either be Father Christmas or very angry dad. That seems to be how we place him. And truth is, as Jesus describes God, as he describes himself, he's describing a God that is perfect 
in how he loves us, also perfect in how holy he is, both at the same time. He's equally both. He's so holy, it actually causes us to, to back away, to flee from him. And so loving that we are drawn to him as well. And we see this in the cross. Later, a guy called Paul, he was writing to a church in Rome, and he said, look, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we, we flee from his holiness, and all are justified freely by his grace through redemption that came by Jesus, this same Jesus that is talking to Nicodemus. It talks about how God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. This is the cross, the moment where actually that God of love and that God of holiness perfectly deals with evil in the world. And forgiveness comes from this moment of love and holiness, from understanding that that's who God is. From this moment on the cross, we're called by Jesus to follow him and to know him. Actually, conceptually, just thinking, yeah, I think Jesus exists. That's fine. That's why I'm here. Actually, that isn't what he's after. He's saying, look, follow me. Believe in me. And it's actually a very simple step. It's not complicated. Even as, as Jesus explains it and Nicodemus is kind of getting confused, actually, it's really very simple. In 1 John 1, explains this simplicity. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He is loving and holy, is another way of saying that, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess to the, the loving, holy gods, what does he do? He forgives. Not only that, but actually he cleans us up as well, purifies us as it describes. He forgives, but then just doesn't leave us as we are in our torment and in our difficulty, uh, in our suffering maybe, but actually he begins to deal with all that's within us to purify us, to make us righteous. When Jesus was telling Nicodemus that this is how you're born again to bring you into the kingdom of God, that's what he's describing, to being forgiven and purified. Thanks for listening. Christchurch Manchester is one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media. And you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode from our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk. We look forward to connecting with you.